Ernest Hemingway was, was the best at flow because he knew how to do the fourth stage. The fourth stage is the recovery stage. That's when you disengage with your activity. A lot of us, it's a dopamine high to be in flow that we're like, I want more, I want more. And we burn out at flow. We need to disengage. So Ernest Hemingway would plan his peak exit. He would only write half a sentence and stop. And that way he knew the next day he could find it and go right back into flow. So for a lot of us, knowing when to quit and recover and do our nice parasympathetic exercises, the meditation, the vagal toning, all of that helps complete that that four cycle. Welcome to the Anthropology Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Walker. As a former naturopathic doctor and anthropologist, I align the intersection of personal performance, purpose, and innovative thinking in badass women working to change the world as entrepreneurs and go-getters. Anthropology is the study and science of what makes an entrepreneur think, feel, and perform in a path compelled by a vision for helping others, solving problems, while building a life on your own terms. Together, we are exploring the health, mindset, and strategies that distinguish the world's best entrepreneurs. This is the Anthropology Podcast. Welcome to episode 254 of the Anthropology Podcast. I am your host, Megan Walker, and we are hanging out in the realm of anthropology, the intersection of mindset, entrepreneurship, and health. I had to hesitate. I always, like, I never go in the same order, and I, it's always one I feel like I'm going to going to forget. And then it's probably because I need a little bit more of what my guest today is going to speak about. Dr. Laura Salyer is a doctor of osteopathy from the United States. She was a primary care provider and really recognized the role that her career in its iteration, in that iteration, was having in terms of influence on her health. And in the midst of her own burnout, she made the decision to change how she practiced, to change how she lived her life. In fact, to change how she engaged with the right side of her brain. And I've done a lot of podcasts before where we talk about burnout, but this one was different. This one was different in that we didn't delve into the symptoms of burnout. We didn't help people recognize that. Uh, What we did do is we talked about the opposite state of burnout, a state called flow a state, a physiological state, a neurochemical state that has been deeply researched and recognized in some of the biggest geniuses, artistic, scientific, literary of our time. And what Dr. Salyer and I get into is how you can access flow state as a tool to not only combat burnout, but to accelerate creativity, even entrepreneurial creativity in your own life. Super interesting conversation. It is always a pleasure. Happy to introduce you to Dr. Laura Salyer. Dr. Laura Salyer, welcome to the Anthropology Podcast. Dr. Megan, thank you for having me. I've, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. You know, one of the things that I've I've really been looking for on the podcast, I'm like, who's doing interesting stuff? Who's taking concepts and repackaging them and driving conversations to access our brain in a totally different way? And when it comes to looking at the world through that type of lens, you are our top of mind. And so we're going to jump into a conversation today around flow state and burnout and creativity and expectation. Before we do that, I'm hoping, can you set the stage 
for my listeners. Who are you and how did you get to this place in your career? Well, I call myself a creativity catalyst. So I'd say I am a strategic person who likes to ignite flow in everyone else. But how did I get here? It's it's pretty simple. It's the path of burnout. I think a lot of people have experienced. And if we're honest, either you or someone you know is suffering burnout right now. Um, actually, 91% of healthcare workers admit they've had burnout at some point in their life, right? And it's interesting to know that burnout is the same brain pattern as grief in our brain. So if we put all our brains in a functional MRI, we're going to work in a grief-stricken state. And in our own culture, we've normalized grief. We understand that's expected, right? You're going to grieve many times. We grieve the boyfriends that we broke up with. We grieve ends of milestones in our life. We grieve the loss of a loved one. And we have tools for this. And we openly embrace grief as a normal part of the human existence. But we don't normalize burnout. And we don't give tools. We say, well, if you get burnout, we act like it's a, it's a, a question mark. And I'd like to make it a period. I'd like to say, you're going to get burned out. So here's some tools to help yourself for when that happens. Not if, but when. And that's kind of what happened to me. I was uh, the ideal family practice doctor. I loved what I did. I went into rural family practice. So I got to set fractures and do a lot of women's health, um, just really live my ideal life. And I loved my staff. But the delivery of medicine changed way drastically. It was no longer the Norman Rockwell putting my stethoscope on the fuzzy chest of a teddy bear. It was, hurry, get it done. Here's a clicked box. Here's what you need to type. And, and it was so foreign that I didn't even recognize burnout in myself. And I started running. I started painting and drawing again. I started doing things that just my body said, let's do this. And it, it unearthed this cool sensation of flow state. And we've all been there as little kids. That's their love language, right, right? Megan? I mean, like mm-hmm. you can get flow just doing Sudoku or even at a three-point line. I mean, everybody has known what flow is, but I didn't realize how missing it was. And when I started doing this more and more, it, it awakens this inner wisdom that we all have. And that allowed me to make better decisions that were congruent where now my core values had shifted and I hadn't realized that I needed this expansive creativity and autonomy that I didn't have. And so then I ended up leaving. I resigned and opened up my own practice in functional medicine. And now I I teach across the world about how to reignite your own inner creative muse. Okay, so we are going to unpack that Creatives, as we were talking and just this notion of, of flow state, and there's so many places that we, we can go to yes. on this, I, I was just thinking, like, what a privilege it is that f- flow, it's such a natural high, and it's something that's actually accessible to all of us through different choices. Like, these are, this is accessible through choice. It's not, you don't have to pay for it. You yes. don't, it's not, it's, it's not connected to privilege. It's actually, it's actually choices. Oh my gosh, r- brilliant. Yes, it's not an app that you download. It's not only reserved for the talented. That's the biggest breakthrough I try to explain that, you know, creative flow or flow state, however you want to say the name, it is not that you go and rent a cabin for a month to, to make your novel happen. It is literally like planning. You can Mm -hmm. have little bits of this creative flow every day. There's a quote that says creative artists or creative people think like artists, but work like accountants. And that is entrepreneurship right there. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't just grind it or you'll burn out in entrepreneur land as well. So yeah, I love that. 
Okay. So I want to, I just, before we jump into the flow piece, I, I'm big on making sure people don't disqualify themselves. And I think sometimes we do that with, mm-hmm. uh, with burnout where we're like, Oh, I don't have that. Mm-hmm. Or we throw burnout into a bucket. We, we throw it into the mental health bucket and we're like, Oh yeah, I don't, I don't have that. I've got better coping skills than that. Can we, can we just establish a working definition of burnout so that everyone understands that this conversation is for them? Yes, smart, smart, because uh, I did not know I was burned out either. And we tend to deflect as caregivers, right? We're taught to put on the grit and the, yeah. the thick skin. So burnout is simply three things. It's depersonalization. In other words, you don't feel aligned with a mission. You don't feel personally attached to any outcome. You feel very jaded and sarcastic. So depersonalization, low perceived achievement, meaning you're working the grind. You're not seeing benefit. And I don't mean financial. I just mean... Right that you're not achieving your own personal milestones, whether you want to be certified in a certain way or have certain professional Mm -hmm. milestones. You just don't feel like you're getting anywhere. You're climbing Mm -hmm. up that Sisyphus mountain. And then lastly, it's emotional exhaustion. So we could dive into a whole functional medicine talk on that as well with, you know, HPA axis and cortisol, but it's really that depletion of inner strength and power. So those three things are burnout. And it's funny because I now have this rule with myself where, um, if the whole world is stupid or everyone driving beside me is an asshole, I'm like, I'm in burnout. And it's literally, that's how I recognize it. And I've spoken about this with my kids and, and I change the language with my kids. But if we're in the car one day, they're like, mommy, you are really impatient. I think maybe you need more sleep or maybe like, if it's just one car, it's one car, but it's more than one. They're like, they know that's the feedback (laughs) mechanism. But that was the first time I discovered that I was burnt out. And when I was like, the rest of the world can't yes. keep up with what I'm doing and I'm angry at all of them. And then I kind of was like, Oh, wait a second. Like totally. Huh. totally. Maybe. Oh my gosh. And I love that you do that with your kids. And I think that's a great way to role model with our kids. I do it all the time with mine as well. Like, yeah. When everyone starts to be an asshole, then you got to look at yourself like, wait, hold on. Let me check myself. Cause we all, and that's the normalization. I love that you're doing is let's not make it this, this really taboo secret thing because that's only pushing providers away from the solution. They're scared to admit it. They're scared to say, I need help. And that's why we have divorce, suicide, and opioid abuse, et cetera. You know? You know, and we're going to talk about the individual in in the context of of flow. And you made a decision to to leave the system as it were. Is the system in a hopeless state? Like what solutions do you think need to come to the table for us to, Uh it's not just medicine, but for us to rescue the workers who are caught in the environment creating this? It is a system that is broken. I do believe that the solution will not happen in my lifetime. I don't think there is one root cause. I think there are so many root causes. And I would view it almost like a relationship when you sign on as a career for a healer, you're you're in a relationship and it's a heartbreaking thing when that Mm. relationship is not what you thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. That's why it takes a lot of us uh, time before we realize it's not a good fit. Now, keeping that same metaphor, I feel like just like in any relationship, when one aspect of that system changes, it changes that whole relationship. So part of my education is really looking at the individual. I think in the past, we've had these really cheesy resiliency seminars and little group hugs and things that just don't work. But looking at the individual and saying, okay, what kind of codependent patterns are you encouraging? Mm -hmm. I understand your staff is going to come to you, but can you put boundaries lovingly in place and say, you know what? 
I work best in the morning with silence. So from this time to this time, do not disturb me unless these three things happen. I mean, you have to be protective of yourself. So that's number one is codependent patterns. What are you nourishing? And we all do it. We all do it. And we're healers. So I think the system is broken. I don't think it's hopeless. I just think it's going to take a lot of different perspectives to help sort of change and right the ship. Mm-hmm. It's such a great perspective. And I mean, listen, I, the society can tolerate and does tolerate burnout in a variety of ways. But, you know, being on the receiving end of healthcare, I've been that patient where I'm looking at this provider. I'm like, you are, you are so done. And I'm feeling it. Like it's, you can feel it's it. such a disingenuous it exchange. Is. I'm like, well, you're going through the motions and I might not die in front of you, but this is horrible. This is a horrible interaction. Yes. And I feel like it's just broaching that conversation in many ways. So one of my things I I sort of end on any talk is, you know, in 20 years ago, we were asked to measure pain as a fifth vital sign, which is really odd because vital signs keep you alive, pulse, you know, respiration, blood pressure, et cetera. Pain doesn't keep you alive. It's, it's subjective and life is painful. So we've set up this power dynamic where we have to fix pain which is also impossible. And it's, it's created this negative relationship, you know, and I, you know, very cheekily said, what if we had a sixth vital sign? And we just said, what brings you joy? When was the last time you played with your hobby? And we started this conversation of normalizing that this is not the end of our story. It's not here to do this and to look at that poor doctor who is so stressed and burned out. And you can recognize it as a human. You said it yourself. You can recognize Mm -hmm. that energy. But imagine if we said, when is the last time you did a hobby? Like, you know, I feel much empathy for these providers and the solution's not in them. It's not in the system, but we need to start doing something to correct it. Okay. So you made a different choice. You recognized your own state mm-hmm. of, of burnout and labeled it and had the, the courage to step outside of, of the box. What what do you do now to cultivate and curate this life where, you know, you're living, you're living your ideal life? Like how, what does that look like? Well, I, I would like to say I'm lucky. I, I love that I've curated this, this very, I don't know, layers of paint on my masterpiece. I, I think the work-life balance is a myth. I hate that term, work-life balance. I think it should be work-life masterpiece. Like put it all together, right. paint layers, erase, you know, um, ask other people like mentors, you know, like people help me learn how to have better painting skills. I know I can get this to be better, you know, and I'm so enjoying my life, but my, my masterpiece is not going to fit for everybody. So I was able to leave. I, I was very lucky to be able to say, I'm done. I'm going to do this. I had a strong entrepreneur creativity streak that I wanted to play with, but not everybody has that. So it's, it's a solution that has to come in other ways. And there's so many different things like the SEEK conference that allows physicians to go and look at other ways they can use their tools, whether it's deposition, medical writing, you know, there's so many skills we have as healers. You don't mm-hmm. have to have the same four walls in that same healing paradigm. You right. could do something different. So it's about investigating your core values. Again, taking it back down to the basics. What do you want your next chapter to look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually, I really love that. And I was doing an exercise recently with our mastermind group. And I was like, we're going to start by identifying our, our values. And a few people are like, well, I'm an, like, I'm an employee, like I'm part of a clinic. And I was like, no, no, no. Like you have core values and you are your own entrepreneurial masterpiece. How you get compensated for that are different models, but we have to be able to lead and acknowledge 
who we are and what's important to us and what we want to stand for before we know where we're going to plug ourselves in. Totally. In fact, that reminds me of one of my favorite episodes you just did. I don't remember which one it was. It was the top 10 CEO traits. I think it was... It was a couple episodes ago. And one of them, you had so many that were gold, like how time is really our currency, not money, you know, and how um, we say yes and, which is a great improv activity I do in a lot of my workouts or workshops because it's building on ideas rather than negating and saying no, but, but my favorite one that you said was the self-authoring. Like we Mm. are Mm self-authors and we're not employees. We're certainly not even doctors or nurses. That's not your identity. You have to dig down and just find out what lights you up. And your job might be one of them, but it may not, but you can still find that, that joy of living in other aspects. And in fact, in high flow leadership through flow research collective, where I'm training, they're talking about how your primary job actually shouldn't, isn't recommended to be your primary flow activity. It's better if you have something outside, like if you're a downhill skier or you like to kite surf or something, because then that will translate into your job. And those, those feelings will, will last longer. It's kind of cool. It's, it's so true. I am a skier and that is where my best ideas come from. So I said to my team this year on Thursdays, this winter, I would like to be blocked. I want my schedule blocked and I'm skiing on a weekday because that's where I do my most creative work, not sitting at my desk hoping that I come up with the next yes. thing. So that's yes. the plan. For, that's the plan for this winter. So, but notwithstanding that piece, let's actually start to put some like labels and science and frameworks to this notion because we keep alluding to this idea of flow and it's an actual thing. So when we talk about flow, can you just define that for everybody? Right. So flow is a term coined by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who is a Turkish-American psychologist, and he has studied flow for nearly three decades. Sadly, just passed in October. I think he was 86. And so he has really been the champion of all of this research, looking at the brain patterns, looking at the neurotransmitters. And he's recognized that it's a state of basically the opposite of burnout, where you might feel like you have low perceived achievement. It's the opposite. You feel like your skills are exactly balanced to that challenge. So you're almost, it's not easy, but it's not hard. You're right in that sweet spot. You also lose track of your ego. You forget. It dissolves. You're you're immersed in this activity. You are at one with your five senses. So it's an embodiment technique, you know, where you're just feeling immersed and time dissolves. So it's this wonderful richness that you have and, and it promotes amazing neurochemistry in your brain. It actually makes you the happiest you probably could be because it's five different neurotransmitters that are produced at once. So it's a really neat, wonderful thing that's accessible anywhere between 20 minutes and 90 minutes. Kids do it all the time. They know how to make themselves go into flow. In fact, at recess, they're probably picking teammates to have on their team because they know, well, that kid is going to help me get into flow because I know how he plays basketball. And so we're more apt to get into group flow. Um, And so as adults, we just don't really prioritize it. And I think it's time. We should. Right. What is the relationship between flow and meditation or is there one? So I believe meditation gives a lot of the gamma brainwave action and that is flow. So flow is four cycles. You start with a struggle, which is more of the norepinephrine kind of anxiety neurochemistry. And so that's where people give up. They think, oh, this is too hard. It's too hard. I'm, st- I'm done. And what they don't realize is that's the very first part of flow and it's four, si- four stages. So don't give up. So when you're struggling, 
And exactly what you said, you go downhill skiing, or for some people, they go take, you know, a walk, or all of us take a shower, that's where 72% of us have great ideas. The reason those activities put you into flow is you are now going to the active part of flow cycle. So there's the struggle, then you have the epiphany, the active part where it's this nitric oxide release, you get this aha, and that is where your body is actually, you're not even thinking, you're on automatic pilot, which is why showers are great. You're kind of zoned out, your visual input is minimized, just your tactile feeling the, the water and your alpha brain waves are able to come right to the front and give you these suggestions. So you, you start with the struggle, you go to this, this little active and then you go into flow, which is wonderful. It's the gamma, the theta, you're, you're enjoying this rush of ideas. And if you have your tools with you, when you start working, that's when the novelists will write, you know, they'll write for hours. And Ernest Hemingway was, was the best at flow because he knew how to do the fourth stage. The fourth stage is the recovery stage. That's when you disengage with your activity. A lot of us, it's a dopamine high to be in flow that we're like, I want more, I want more. And we burn out at flow. We need to disengage. So Ernest Hemingway would plan his peak exit. He would only write half a sentence and stop. And that way he knew the next day he could find it and go right back into flow. So for a lot of us, knowing when to quit and recover and kind of do our nice parasympathetic exercises, you know, the meditation, the vagal toning, all of that helps complete that, that four cycle. I'm just going to pull out as the quote of the, of the whole interview, knowing when to quit. Yes. We don't know when to quit. No one's ever taught us how to do it. And we have this society that is just like, go, 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 go. Mm -hmm. Like we don't quit until we are burnt out and then we recover and we go until we're burnt out. Like if we're talking about cause, I actually feel like educating people on knowing when to quit is really actually a key life skill. Yes. And it's a great motherhood, parenthood skill too. I try to remind myself to ask my kids, okay, what'd you fail at today? What'd Mm -hmm. you quit today? You know, because Mm -hmm. it's too much like, what did you, what'd you gain? What's your achievement? Well, some of the best achievements are knowing when to fold them and walking away, putting the paintbrush down for a bit. I'm not going to keep painting this masterpiece. I need a break. That is the best self-care. So when moms, you know, friends of mine are, you know, saying things like, oh, I don't know if I can join and go out for dinner tonight. I, I'm tired. I'm going to stay in and take a bath or take care. Of, great. Thank you for taking care of yourself. Quit. You need, quit on everything. If it's not a hell yes, like take a break. It's interesting because that was a lesson. I've looked back on my life where I've made big turning points. And I feel like one area I practice is knowing when knowing when to quit. And I don't mean quit as in like, I gave up. I'm, I, I'm using it in a different way, but even stepping out of, and you and I've talked about this before, but stepping out of one-on-one practice, I just knew, I knew like deep in my core that that chapter of my contribution had come to an end. And people ask me if I miss it. I don't, I don't miss it. I love the people. I, I interact with some of my former patients, like love, I love, love, love people. But that version and that iteration of contribution had actually that that season had ended and it's I I didn't I don't feel like I quit practice I didn't I didn't leave because I I I resented it I was just like and yes that, that scene is over I love that. And I love that perspective because we, I feel it almost like what we, what we do when we watch our children grow up. I mean, people, mm-hmm. oh, don't you miss the baby stage? I, I, I recall and love the memories, 
But do I want to be back in that stage? No. no. I love not having diapers. <laughs> like, you know? Sorry to all the new moms out there. We're both like, <clears throat> right. No. But it's right. And so we tend to put this this credibility on how successful you are is how long you've been in a relationship mm-hmm. or a career. Some of the best friendships or relationships I've had weren't very long, but they taught me so many things. And I look back right. on them fondly. And and right. so why can't we view our careers like that as well or our activities? Like it's okay to change your mind and do something different. And it's it's a wonderful learning experience. Yeah, a hundred percent. Okay, so we've got this this esoteric notion called flow. And I I know you talk about this concept and have maybe written a book on it called Right Brain Rescue. <laughs> but for the average person who's like, okay, like I would like to have flow, just like they'd like to have a meditation practice, um, but don't know how to take that first step. What does that what does that look like? Like what can we do right now today to actually get into action around this? I love that. That's a great idea to just drill it down to one tiny first step. And it would be noticing. Notice when is the last time you were in flow? And that's the thing I start with all the time. When was the last time you lost track of time? And we're not talking like, you know, you know, snoozed your alarm because you're sleeping late. We're talking like you forgot this activity was so fun. When was the last time you laughed so hard? When was the last time you just created something for the sake of creating? There was no goal. So as, as paradoxical as it is, flow loves feedback. So goals are very important in a small way. That's why video games can get you into flow because there's little tiny goals. So mm-hmm. you can gamify your own day and create flow in your day by putting f- like false little tiny milestones in there. But if you're looking at, well, gosh, I want to, to invite flow back in my life, just notice when it happens. That's all you got to do. Notice. Is it when you were on your walk with your dog or when you're downhill skiing or is it, you know, any other activity? And then be curious about what is it about that activity? Because there are lateral activities that might bring in elements of that flow, right? If you're a person who's competitive and like sports and you like competition, then look for other ways to get competition, you know? So there's a lot of patterns to notice. Yeah. And it's interesting. Last night I was doing my kid's my kids elf brings them puzzle pieces every day in December, but not the picture. And so they were having trouble doing it. So I stepped in last night and did the the border on their, on their puzzle. I was like, I did. I totally lost track of time. I was completely relaxed. Yes. I also was sort of violent about no one coming near me. Cause I needed, <laughs> like I was in my zone. We um, so need to be neighbors. My God. <laughs> the puzzles. I was like, Oh, this is so, I mean, sometimes we overthink these things. We make yes. them really complicated or we think we need to have a, an artist studio and be painting. Like that is not my skill set. Yes. I love puzzles. Puzzles are a great introduction. And we do that in the winter as well, because it's a common activity that's kind of brainless and you're just sort of letting your brain go and you're searching for patterns. And that's the thing is people think creativity is very divergent, divergent. They think they have to have these expansive abstract thoughts like Picasso or Michelangelo. And it's actually a balance of a little bit of divergent, but a lot of convergent thought, a lot of noticing patterns, noticing, connecting the dots in a way that only you can connect them. And, and when people understand how simple that is and a puzzle can bring you there, go for it. Right you'd spoken a little bit about this notion of like the flow research collective mm-hmm. and some of the, like, what is all this stuff? Cause like the total brain geek in me is like, Oh, like where, where do I learn more oh, about this? Stuff? Oh yes. I, I highly recommend. So it's an offshoot of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's work and he works with Stephen Kotler, Rian Doris, mm-hmm. and it's across the world. And it's kind of this, 
virtual school, so to speak. And Stephen Kotler's read or wrote many books, and he started with a zero to dangerous program. And I love the name zero to dangerous. And it teaches you the elements of just how to go from zero to dangerous in optimizing your human potential. It's, it's designed for people just wanting to learn more about flow. Then he went to flow trainer accelerator for people like us that want to coach flow. I want to learn how to coach right. flow and others. Now I, cause I'm a junkie. You would love it. It, it. I had to go to the, his highest level, which is the high flow leadership. Cause I want all of it. And that teaches us how to in, infuse flow in organizational change. And so I'm really trying to use a lot of this training in neuroscience to kind of nudge the culture of how we practice medicine. Think of it outside the four walls of the exam room. I mean, right. come on, you know, that's not where healing occurs. We need to think about using videos and all these other cool things to practice medicine in a different way. Okay, I, I love all of these pieces. And, and the thing is, is as you're talking about this, I, I do, we talk about, you know, life and entrepreneurship mm -hmm. uh, blending, but I, I think that health and leadership blend more than we ever acknowledge at the same time. And so even for those leaders or entrepreneurs among us who've got different organizations outside of healthcare, this is a really beautiful, accessible avenue to start to have these conversations. Because I agree with you, these one-off workshops that you do is, is like a check of the box. That, mm -hmm. Oh, we have a wellness program. We had someone come in last year to talk about Bingo. apples and kale. And that is like, that isn't actionable or useful oh. or accessible or interesting uh, to anybody. Oh my gosh, but you, this you nailed it. Yes, you nailed it. And that's the problem is, is those institutions will self-identify and say, well, we have a program for that. Yep. We, we've checked the box because what we like to do in American medical training is saying the ACGME, which governs all the residencies says, oh, well, wow, we see burnout and suicide. Well, then let's make a, a mandated, you know, that you have to have some kind of focus group or something that teaches them. And so what- Let's what, mandate more on your calendar. Right, exactly. And so they mandate things on the calendar, like workshops, or they've done a study where they, they forced people to have like a morning yoga practice or some kind of meditation and it backfired. It, when you force people to, to relax, yoga. it's not going to work, you know? Mm -hmm. And so by, by doing this in a different way, speaking to our neuroscience, teaching organizational leaders how to infuse and empower our professionals, we don't get professional development. I don't know if you did, but man, when I got out of residency, you're just kind of left out there in the wild and there's no one looking after your well-being and saying, hey, how can we shape, have your core values shifted? Let's let's reassess, you know, where are you lacking in flow? Can we help? What other tools? You know, all of this kind of molding and shaping just doesn't happen. How do you bring this into your practice with your patients? Like, mm. what does it inform in terms of the line of questioning that you ask them? Like, I just expect that you are a physician who's so different than everybody else's physician. Like what, and that always starts with questioning, like, what are you asking your patients? Yes. What I ask now, I, you know, I probably have not, not asked in my traditional practice when I was employed, but every patient draws. So they come to their first visit and they have a masterpiece that they've driven, dr drawn. And I ask them, where would you be in one year if you were free of any of the, the symptoms that you're seeing me for? So that tells me a lot because when you have to take time to put pencil to paper, and mm -hmm. you have to choose what's going into your drawing, you're mm -hmm. having to make those decisions of what's really important to you. So it tells me a lot about their core values. It tells me a lot about their mindset and their readiness to change. And it provides a very subliminal way for them to reflect back on this every time they see it. So I have them keep it and put it back on their fridge. So when they look at that, then they can go, okay, is this micro decision that I'm making right now to take a bite of chocolate cake 
uh, one towards or away from my vision, right? You know, so it's a really kind of subliminal way to say, are you really committed to this change? So yeah, I, I ask patients all the time, you know, to draw at their first visit. And then every group visit that I do once a week, you know, I come in, I, I, I have them come in and we do a little small educational topic and then I open it up for Q&A. But everyone starts off with a right brain warm up. So we do some visualization, we do some creative drawing or some activity in the body just to keep that at top of mind. I, I really do love that. And there's a literal flow that happens when you're drawing, regardless of your mm-hmm. uh, talent level. Mine is really low, but it's, it's still, it's still, it's still fun. Like it's still, yes. it's still engaging. And yes, it takes you out of that analytical part of your, Absolutely. of your, of your brain. Absolutely. For and sure. I think that's the fun part is I want people to play with their, their flow that just rekindle that joy of creativity. And like you said, you know, people, oh, I'm not an artist. I don't know how to draw. Well, there's no such thing as bad art, but also drawing a circle. That's a simple exercise anybody can do right now. Even if they're listening is taking and almost like you're drawing in the middle of the air and you're taking your pen and you're going around and around making a circle, circle, circle. Each time you do that, you get more and more accurate. You're actually building neuroplasticity right now. And I mean, that is exactly neuroscience happening in the brain. So just doing simple things like that can be pivotal. And then do it with your non-dominant hand. Yes. We're getting advanced over here, everyone. <laughs> if we if we were really balancing out some of these practices in our own life, and and I'm at a phase in my life where I like I just I have to schedule a plan A in my in my day, and I have morning rituals that I include. If I was really actively, it sounds well, maybe it doesn't sound bad, but here's my initial thought. I want to schedule my flow activities. So one, just just tell me, Laura, like, am I off base on this? And two, if I were to do that, is there a time of day in terms of circadian rhythm where we are best to engage in flow activities or it will keep us up? Like, Now let's get nuanced. Oh, I love the details. Yes. So yes, you can schedule flow, but also be non-committal about that. And what I mean is your circadian rhythm might be different than others, right? I'm a morning person. So I found that I did my best work that was creative in the morning. So if it required high level, big brain tasks, like deep work, Cal Newport has a great book, Deep Work. He talks about all of that really deep brain work. That's best for the morning for me. So me trying to do a lot of that work in the afternoon will not work for me. So I schedule it. So I schedule and there's flow triggers that you can plant in your schedule to increase the chance you get into flow. And then there's flow blockers you can remove that will also help you. So it's a whole cool process. For example, flow, there's 36 different flow triggers, but the top ones are a good mood, like anything that makes you laugh. Any serotonin uh, burst will help you get into flow better, which is why comedians, you know, those kinds. So listening to a, a upbeat playlist in your car on the way to work, instant, it will get you more likely into flow. Another top flow trigger is nature. Walking outside in nature, you know, just seeing the landscape is very grounding, but also very enlivening. And then let's do two flow blockers. For example, flow, one of the biggest flow blockers I see is thought errors that we make. We love our cognitive distortions. You talk about all the time, our mindset, you know, what? yes, like, <laughs> oh, I can't do that or imposter mm-hmm. or, you know, mind reading or black and white thinking or all of these things are flow blockers. So that's very, very difficult to, you know, permanently removed, but just being aware. Am I having a thought error right now? Am I, am I black and white thinking this? Am I, you know, judging? And then this, another common flow blocker would be improper fueling, right? So physiologically, making sure those mitochondria are humming, making sure your cortisol is balanced, making sure 
you're doing some intermittent fasting, you know, whatever is good for your health. So yes, you can schedule it. Absolutely. Where, where does exercise fit in all of this? And Ooh. I suspect if we're burnt out, it, it would probably be a blocker, but let's assume we're in a, we're not in a burnt out state. It could be either. For me, it was a flow trigger because when I was burn, burning out, I started training for my first half marathon. That's what got me. It's funny. It was like motherhood and burnout made me leave. It made me run outside, you know, and because that was the only yeah. place nobody could get a hold of me. And I, mm-hmm. I'm i not an athlete I, at all. I mean, you can ask my eighth grade gym teacher, not an athlete, but desperate times, desperate measures. And so I decided yeah. I'm going to walk. Then I'm like, well, I'm going to see if I can run. Then I'm going to run 5K, then 10K and started doing this. And guess what? That made flow because it was teeny little milestones. I kept Mm -hmm. feeling it and then became curious. So, you know, that is one way just to, you know, get into float. Now exercise is different for everybody. If your cortisol is not managed well, sometimes those high intensity exercises need to take a break for a while. You need some parasympathetic yoga or something a little more chill, but everybody's a little individual. Just notice what happens in your body. If it feels good, keep doing it. Is a runner's high flow state? Yes, mm-hmm. it okay. is. It is. But not every runner gets a runner's high. My high came in in epiphany, similar to what you were saying with skiing. Like you just feel like, oh, that makes sense. And I don't, I'm sure you've had this happen because you're just that kind of person that you have all these ideas. And the minute you stop that activity, sometimes they go, like they, they're gone. For mm-hmm. me, I keep like a notebook or something where I can jot it down because that state goes away and suddenly things don't, you can't recall because what that is, right. is you're making these lateral connections, you know, these cross connections in your brain and it all feels like it's going to be permanent. You'll always remember that fantastic idea and it's very transient. So have a notebook down to capture those thoughts. Yeah. I get into flow when I'm speaking. Mm-hmm. And so one, I have to catch myself. So we just did this event and you were there, but Fabulous. we were running late because then so I start talking, I just keep talking. And then people will often say, what did you just say? And I will have absolutely yep. no idea what just came out of, like, I really couldn't tell you what just came out. And just about every, actually every solo episode that I do on the Anthropology podcast, I sit down and write three points and then just talk. And then I close it it. and we publish it. And I couldn't tell you what I spoke about. That's that's awesome. But no one knows. I don't think anyone knows that because people were like, do you write this? Do you? And I'm like, no, I write like three points. And then I just shut the world out and I just... That's awesome. Like that is the manifestation of flow for me. Yes. And that's awesome. A lot of people would then, you know, think about how they can wrap that in different narratives. Oh, that's divine intervention or that's flow or or maybe she's just so creative, but it's all the same state. Like you're just, you've maximized your own potential. I think that's awesome. I just bought myself a microphone and I just share it. That's how we, that's how we roll. I feel like I could just talk about this now I've told you when I talk, I'm in flow. So like, there's just no stopping us. I love it. Word uh, vomit. That's what I call it for me. I have word vomit. I just can't stop. It rolls. Right? I do feel like this is a really fantastic place to uh, transition the interview. And so I, I traditionally have a series of questions that I, I ask at the end of the interview. And one thing I'm really curious about right now is, you know, the, the world has changed and we've all experienced that. It is the ultimate. We've all been in it together. And I'm really interested in understanding the different ways people have emerged on the other side, although one would argue we're still in it. But I'm liking to think that we're on the other side. What lesson or lessons have you learned in your life over the course of the last 18 to 22 months? Yes. That has like, been really personal to you. Yeah, I would say um, a lot more of patience and daily gratitude 
um, just giving everybody patience and grace. So I'd say the the big word that comes up in the last 18 months is just allowing an extended period of grace for everything. You know, Zoom has glitches, you know, you, you know, we live in an online world now, you know, just having, I've become a lot more chill, you know, which isn't saying much because I'm pretty like high strung, right? But <laughs> you might not be able to measure it. Maybe it's in like tiny nano millimeters or whatever. But I feel like I've I've approached it now with like just, hey, you know, whatever happens, happens. It will all be fine. <laughs> so a lot of grace. Love that. What is your um, most important health habit that you engage in consistently? Ooh, if I could pick an important health habit, just one. Oh, Megan. No, this is an entrepreneurial podcast, so there's no rules. There's oh, only frameworks, so you can go wherever you want. Oh, well, I I like to use the phrase, uh, if you ever are familiar with the company Patagonia, they have a, a culture where it says, let the people go surfing. And in their paradigm of their culture, they have a high flow culture where they say at any point in your day, if you're a worker for them and the tide is right, you can leave your job and you can go surfing. And what they've done is they put flow at the highest level of priority, which I love. Now we can't leave our patients and go and, you know, knit or draw. But what I try to do is respect that urge in my life. So if I feel like I need to go get messy or I, I, what do I, what does my body want to do today? I know I was supposed to go to the gym and lift heavy things, but I'm actually feeling like playing with my jump rope. So I picked up jump roping. I've never jump rope before. And I, I'm curious. I follow so many Instagrammers and I'm loving their tutorials and I'm learning footwork and it's making my teens eyes roll. And I love that. And so a lot of this curiosity, I think I embrace on a daily basis. I just love being curious about what is this day going to be for me and, and just go from that root of how do I feel in my body? It's amazing. And as you're saying that, I think part of what enables curiosity to just happen and you lean into it, like it becomes not just a cognitive exercise, but a somatic exercise yes. is confidence. And it's, as you're saying that, I'm like, what a cool way to practice confidence. And I believe oh. confidence is something you have to practice is by being curious and then allowing it to come into manifestation. So that's so cool that you're doing that. Cause as you're like, my teens are rolling their eyes. Like even that sometimes slows us down. I love um, it. Yes. And that's I, love amazing. That you, I love that you connected that. It's a great, great connector of the curiosity and confidence. Cause the more you're curious, the more you'll fail. And that's what gives you confidence. Cause you see that you'll be fine. Like you see that you're just being curious. You're just playing. And that's what we're here on this earth to do is to be playful and curious mm -hmm. and enjoy it. The the good, the bad, the highs, the lows, and just keep on going. Mm -hmm. So for those of you out there who are curious, what would happen if you quit your job in 2022? Just throwing it out there. There's, we're always one choice away. Last question for you, Laura. Entrepreneurship. Are we born this way or do we learn to become entrepreneurs? I think it's both. I, I definitely think it's a six of one, half dozen the other. I think that if we're allowed to express it, it's amazing how many entrepreneurs are out there. I think it's they're blocking themselves from digging in. And it's not for everybody. As you know, it's a different shit sandwich than being an employed person. You're going to have a lot of different totally. things to tackle. But it's, it's a thrilling ride and a milestone. And just like watching your babies grow up, it might be something in the past. You might want to eventually leave entrepreneurship behind and become an employee again. And there's no shame in that either. Mm -hmm. So enjoying the idea of entrepreneurship is sadly, I think, missed on a lot of people. I think we all have it inside. We just aren't in that environment to awaken it. And it's probably a good thing. I think we need a balance of everybody in this world. 
amazing Dr. Laura Sellier. I could talk to you all day long. Where can we send people to learn more about and watch the work that you're putting? Oh, just connect with me on socials, drlaurasalier.com, Instagram, drlaurasalier. I'm fledgling TikTok user. My daughter has me practice dances at night, but those are unpublished, but maybe I'll get there someday. So I want to see some jump rope on TikTok. Oh yeah. There's more. Yeah. I got to get more jump rope on there. That's fun. It's so Uh fun. Just, just throwing that out there. Always such a pleasure to connect. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Megan. Wasn't that so fun? I am literally on my way to go work on my puzzle as we speak. I absolutely love, uh, I absolutely love speaking uh, to this woman and I am super fascinated to lean into this notion of uh, flow in 2022. If you enjoyed this episode, if you think it would be helpful for others, I'd love for you to help us spread the word. And the best way to do that is to make sure that you are subscribed on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to a podcast. And if you have a hot second, leave me a review. The more reviews we collect, the more stars we have, the more words you put to paper, the more people we are able to access. I appreciate it so immensely. Uh, and I'm really, I'm still just so darn jazzed about uh, about the conversation that we had this week. I'm going to carry on this conversation related to flow over on my Instagram. If you're not following me, it's at Walker. You can find access to that from our show notes. You can learn more about about Dr. Laura Salyer in our uh, show notes. And until next week, I'm wishing you an amazing state of flow and an impactful week ahead. We'll talk to you again next Tuesday.